Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. And uh, great to see you. I want to invite you, if you have your Bible, to turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. And as you turn there, we're just going to begin our time with just, just a moment of silence. Uh, life is sometimes such a scramble and such a rush, so we just want to invite the Lord to prepare our hearts to hear from Him. So as you're finding that in your Bible, let's just take a moment and be still before the Lord. Oh Lord, we proclaim and we believe because you've proclaimed the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. And your word goes forth and it never returns void. And so Lord, week after week we return to your word and I thank you God that we can come with great expectation. And I pray if there's anyone here who's not coming today with a great anticipation, a great hope of hearing from the living God, I pray, Lord, that you would work in their heart right now. Lord, that you would fill them with that, that anticipation that this is the place where we hear from the Lord. Not, not when this fallen man stands up behind a pulpit, but, but when this book is opened. Empowered by your Spirit, we see and we hear and we know your truth, and that's what we need, God. Um, I I reflect on the people in this room, and Lord, there are a hundred different obstacles, a hundred different challenges, a hundred different trials and hopes and fears and excitements, and yet your word speaks to each of us. And I thank you that your spirit will apply this truth to each of us. So God, we invite you now with great expectation to speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 3, and uh, I'll just give you a, a quick synopsis. I promise I'll stop giving these updates probably starting next week, but we're early enough in the letter that I just want to make sure that we all understand where we are in the flow of things. If you remember, in chapter 1, verse 8, we find what I called last week a table of contents for the book of Acts. You can look there one more time. And in this table of contents, Luke tells us, tells us that Jesus declared this before he ascended to heaven. Jesus said to his disciples, to his church, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's Pentecost. That's what we see in Acts chapter 1 and 2. God has filled His people, that is us, with His Spirit. We, we are filled with God Himself. And He's now ministering in and through us to this world. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Check. And, and then He proceeds to list the mission. And you will be my witnesses. And He puts it in four stages here. Imagine a concentric circle. So you've got the closest part, and then it expands out. So you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is you are here, speaking to his disciples, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So that's the mission, broken down in four stages. So where are we in chapter 3? We're in stage 1 of the mission. Here we have the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God, taking up the assignment of God. And they're beginning where he told them to begin, which is in Jerusalem. Now, as we turn here to chapter 3, we're going to find Peter and John doing something rather ordinary. They're making their way to the temple for the daily prayer time. It's 3 p.m. This is when people go to the temple to pray, and that's what they're doing. I want to just step aside for a moment, and I want to make sure that we see this, because what was the episode that we were considering in chapters 1 and 2? The ascension, right? Jesus ascending to heaven. They witnessed this. It's glorious. And then Pentecost. They're waiting in the room, they're praying, and then they're filled with the Spirit of God, tongues of fire over their heads. They open their mouths and they proclaim the glory of God in languages they've never learned. 3,000 people are converted. This is 
This is revival, right? Well, now here we find them in chapter 3, and they're just making their way to an ordinary prayer meeting at the temple. And what I want you to see, and what we need to see, is that God is there in the extraordinary, but God is there in the seemingly ordinary as well. And if you've ever experienced the extraordinary, you know, some of you, perhaps you've been a part of a, a little revival. You remember a time when the church was just bursting at the seams and there's baptisms every week and you've, you've witnessed these great experiences or perhaps you were at a worship service and, and the, the Spirit just moved in such a powerful way that everybody in the room knew that God is on the move and tears are in your eyes. And when you have those experiences, sometimes we can take the gift and, and, and we can build up a bit of a discontentment as we return to the ordinary. You know, we're expecting the extraordinary all the time. But God is with us in the ordinary. That's, that's an aside, but I think it's, it's helpful for us to see that. The disciples are not back in the upper room saying, God, do it again. I want to see the tongues of fire again. No, they're making their way to the temple for ordinary prayer time. And God meets them there in the ordinary. Let's never despise the small things. Now, we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. We're covering all of chapter 3. And so we're going to break this text into two sections, the sign and the sermon. We're going to get, begin with the sign, which we find in verses 1 to 10. Look with me now. Hear God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. They begin counting time from sunrise, which is 6 a.m. At the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk, then entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, before we get into the details of, of this story, uh, I want to make one big picture observation about signs and miracles. And I recognize a story like this for, for probably a good chunk of us in the room it stirs up questions about signs and wonders and miracles and, and what should we expect this in the church today and what does that look like? I want you to know we're going to deal with that at length when we get to chapter 5. Uh, there's a text in chapter 5 that really lends itself to a, a zoomed-in discussion there. But we've got a lot of ground to cover today, so we're not going to wade into that. Only is to say this. It seems, when we read the book of Acts, that when God is advancing his kingdom... He often accompanies that advancement with fireworks. So, Pentecost, when God ushers in this new age, when he fills his people with the Spirit and he, and he moves, his kingdom is advancing in a powerful way. We see fireworks, tongues of fire, people speaking in language, signs and wonders, it's glorious. 
Here in stage one, as he's advancing his kingdom in Jerusalem, we see fireworks. The lame leaping. We're going to see the same thing as he advances to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I would argue we see the same thing today when the gospel advances into unreached people groups. It is not uncommon to hear reports back from missionaries about God doing inexplainable things, coming into communities where, where people had had dreams and visions, and when they came into the city, people were ready to hear the gospel. God often accompanies the advancement of his kingdom with fireworks. And we're going to talk more about that, but what we're seeing today is this glorious display. God is has setting off this signal, and he's drawing the attention of the people, and he's saying, look here, I am doing something in your midst. That's what we find. We find a man who's sat at the beautiful gate outside of the temple, We find in chapter 4 that he's 40 years old, which means he's been doing this for a long time. Imagine the excitement when he bursts into the temple, leaping and praising God. A crowd gathers, they're ready to hear a sermon from Peter, and he delivers. But before we get to the sermon, I I do want to draw your attention to this, the sign itself. We see some amazing things here. First of all, I want to draw your attention to a broken man. Here's a man who is literally born into powerlessness. He was lame from birth, the text tells us. So he didn't do something sinful and then trip and injure himself. No, he was born this way. Powerless. Day after day, he needs people to carry him outside this beautiful gate. Imagine, you know, they've got to carry their friend, perhaps their family member. They lay him down in this place. You know, do they go into the temple then to worship? I'm not sure. But he's sitting here outside of the temple. The text is clear to say. Outside of the place where he would love to be worshiping God. He's got to sit here and beg for, for crumbs and watch day after day as all of his people march past him to the place of worship, giving him little tokens of generosity. This is his life, born into it. And I can't help but see in this broken man a portrait of humanity apart from Christ. Born into powerlessness. Let me just read a few texts from Scripture about how how the Bible describes our condition. Not, Not just beggars, not just the poor. How the Bible describes all of our condition apart from Jesus. In Romans 3, Paul writes, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one even seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Ephesians 4. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated, set apart from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. Ephesians 2. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Time after time, the Apostle Paul and and all of God's Word is hammering home this truth that apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, this is who we were. Powerless born into the sin of Adam, perpetuating it in our own lives. Words from the text, worthless, alienated, hopeless, dead. That's our condition apart from Jesus. And because of our condition, just like this man in this story, we are, we're separated from the presence of God. 
outside of the temple, forever sentenced to sit at the gate, watching people pass by, but unable to get in ourselves. And I want to just say that perhaps there are even some of you who are here, and perhaps you've been coming week after week after week, and you feel like this man. You watch as people around you enter in to the the presence of God. You watch as they go somewhere, but you feel like you're forever on the outside looking in. There is a chasm that you cannot bridge. In this broken man, we see an illustration of the world apart from Jesus. Born into ruin, separated from God, and settling for a lifetime for scraps from the table. But praise God, we also see a compassionate response. So Peter and John are on their way to the temple to worship when they hear this voice calling out for alms. And so they turn And in verse 4 it says, And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and they said, Look at us. Now on on any given day, hundreds if not thousands of worshipers would march past this man. There's a reason why he's at the beautiful gate. This is a place with lots of traffic. Lots of people are going to be going past him. Day after day he's asking for alms and people are, are giving him little tokens of generosity. As a, as a response of worship, there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. But like beggars today, he almost certainly would have spent most of his day with his head down, his eyes low. It's a shameful thing. Nobody wants to beg. What a surprise it must have been for him to hear this call. Look at us. So he looks up. He hands out. He's expecting something. But what's he thinking in this moment? Is he, you know, are they going to be looking at him with judgment? Are they going to be mocking him? What is this? He looks up and he sees these eyes that look at him But they look at him with compassion. He sees these eyes that see him not as a beggar, not as an embarrassment, but as a man created in the image of God. I love what the great preacher G. Campbell Morgan says here. He says, Peter looked, and through the eyes of Peter there flashed the love of the Christ. Oh, that the world would see the love of Jesus when they look in our eyes. How often have we been guilty of looking at the world with eyes of condescension, eyes of judgment, eyes of pride, looking down our noses at the world around us, looking down our noses at the brokenness, forgetting what the Apostle Paul said in those texts, and you were dead. Such were some of you. This this is us apart from Christ. And yet we can look down the world, look down our nose at the world. Not Peter, not John. 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul describes our calling as followers of Jesus. He describes us as ambassadors of Christ. To be an ambassador is to be a representative of the one who sent you. If you are an ambassador, it is your job to get out of the way. Right? If I'm an ambassador for the king, then when you talk to me, it should be as if you're talking to the king. I'm resembling him. I'm giving you his thoughts. I'm giving you his will, his decree. I'm not sliding in my opinion. When you look at me, you should be seeing a glimpse of him. That's what it is to be an ambassador. And Paul says, we are ambassadors of Christ. When people look at us, they should see him. And that's certainly what Peter and John are doing here. They knew Jesus. And people who know Jesus live differently, don't they? They knew Jesus. They, they walked and they ministered with Jesus. They were with him that one time when, when Jesus walked through a crowd and this woman grabbed hold of him and this woman had been bleeding for a lifetime. She's unclean, technically, and she's laying hold of Jesus. They watched as he looked at her with mercy and he healed her. 
and he set her back on her feet. They were with Jesus when he broke from the crowd and he went into the leper colony. The lepers had to live in their own separate place because they would contaminate everybody else. He he walked into this place and, and he touched the people who were the untouchables. And he prayed for them. And he healed them. And he dignified them. I, I love this story. When I, had a, when I had a week of vacation, I went to a, a church in town. And he preached on this text. And I love this story. Do you remember the time when Jesus and the disciples, he tells the disciples, get in the boat. We're going to cross to the other side. So they get in the boat and they go across the Sea of Galilee. And a big storm picks up. And, and you could die in a storm like this. This is a big deal. But Jesus silences the storm with a word. And they get across, and this was a big experience for the disciples, right? But it's not done, because then they walk into an unclean place. A place where there are tombs, a place where you should not be as a Jew. And they find a man, and he's possessed by a legion of demons, and he's cutting himself, and he's screaming out, and he's got chains he's broken out of. Everybody's horrified of this man. Jesus goes to him, and he casts the demons out. And he sets the man back on his feet, and he sends him into the world with a testimony. And then, here's what's so amazing about the story. Because all of that was amazing. But do you remember what happens next? He just climbs back into the boat, and they go back to the other side. That is, that is a big mission for one man. You know, to cross the sea in a storm, to go into an unclean place, confront a man who's filled with demons, so that you can set one man free? Who does that? Jesus does that. And Peter and John know Jesus. They know his heart for the world. And they understand that we're his ambassadors. I'm going to quote G. Campbell Morgan one more time because he has this quote that's so helpful here. He writes, The church standing afar off, singing a song which she hopes will reach the dwellers in the valley, does but mock the need of the dweller in the valley. The church that comes down to the side of the wounded, weary, woe-begone world and holds out the right hand and lifts is the church through which the Christ is doing his own work, through which the Christ will win his ultimate victory. Church, if I could be candid with you, I confess I often miss the mark here, right in this place, particularly this past year. It's just easier to avoid the mess. It really, truly is. It's safer to stand at a distance. And, and just as one person who needs the grace of Jesus to others, I confess that if I'm not daily surrendering this to the Lord and asking for His help, I gravitate to safe and easy like a moth to the flame. And as a church, we're going to feel the same pull, but we are the ambassadors of Jesus He hasn't called us to easy. He hasn't called us to safe. Let us increasingly become the church that enters in and that stoops down and that reaches up and that lifts. I love that language. Oh, that the world would see the love of Christ in our eyes. Now, third and most importantly, in this sign we find a powerful name. And kids, your note says a powerful Savior. So if you cross that out and write name, you get bonus marks for paying attention. I changed it this morning. We find a powerful name in this passage. Peter and John are are so clear to draw attention in this story to the fact that they are not the heroes. They're not the champions. They're not doing this. When they address the crowd, they ask, why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? 
It wasn't us. What we see here in this story, what we're going to see all through the book of Acts, and what we see in the church today, is that it is not the apostles. It's not Peter. It's not John. It's not the church. It's not your favorite preacher or or your favorite Christian leader who accomplishes anything to advance the kingdom of God. It's Jesus working in and through apostles and churches and people and leaders and ministers. It is Jesus. If I could just draw your attention back to chapter 1. Chapter 1 of Acts, verse 1. Luke says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Meaning, book 1, that was the beginning, friends. But now let me tell you what Jesus continues to do in and through the world using His apostles, using His church. With compassion in His eyes, Peter looked at this man and he declared in verse 6, I have no silver and I have no gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now I mentioned this man's 40 years old. We see that in chapter 4. So, If you're a regular worshiper at the temple, which most of the people at this point are, this doesn't seem to be during any of the assemblies. So this is this seems like you know normal Jerusalem. And so these are the normal worshipers who are living close and are going to the temple for the daily time of prayer. They walk past this man all the time. For decades they've walked past this man. And so you can imagine as Peter and John are here and they they start talking to this the beggar, anybody standing by, you wonder if you know they snicker in this moment. As Peter and John tell him to stand up and walk. Like, what kind of audacity? Who do you think you are? Are you mocking him? Are you teasing him? How shocked they must have been when we read in verse 7. Immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. I don't know if you've ever broken a, a bone. Anybody here ever done that? Broken a bone? Yeah, Colin, yeah. Josiah. It takes a while to get that back, doesn't it? It's amazing how quickly the muscles atrophy. You've got to go through a whole process to get that strength back. You've been in a cast for you know, a few months. You lose it. Here's a man who's 40 years old. He's never walked. Parents, you ever taught kids how to walk? That's a frightening experience, isn't it? Lots of tumbling, lots of sharp edges all around. It's a, it's a frightening thing. Instantly, muscles develop. Instantly, all the memory and coordination needed to walk are, are downloaded into this man. Not only does he get up, he leaps up, it says. He starts walking around. He starts leaping around. He makes his way into the temple and he's praising with every bound. There's power in the name of Jesus. Power to heal. Power to give life to the dead. Power to transform your heart. Power to break your addiction. Power to change your desires. Power to restore your marriage. Power to overcome unbelief. Power to animate even the most feeble of sermons. There's power in the name of Jesus. Oh, that we would remember that and believe that and live in that place. There is. There is. But I want to make, a, make just a quick point here. I want to make sure we know what we're saying when we say that there's power in the name of Jesus. Because sometimes, particularly if you're a new Christian or this is all new to you, it, it can... You might think that we're, this is like a Christianized version of abracadabra. You know, and that's not what it is. 
It's not like, hey, I want this thing to happen in the name of Jesus. You know, or this coin's going to disappear in the name of Jesus. That's, it's not that. So what does it mean then when we say that there's power in the name of Jesus? It means that when we, when we proclaim and when we pray in Jesus' name, we're saying that we're, we're making these requests in Jesus' authority, not our own. So I'm not praying in the name of Levi. I'm praying in the name of Jesus. I'm praying in the name of the second person of the Trinity who's seated at the right hand of the Father, mediating on our behalf. I'm praying in His name with His authority for this, in accordance with His will as I can see it. Now, here's an illustration. Perhaps after the service, you go outside and you see the Denbach kids and they're playing basketball. You can speak to them in the name of, of Levi. You could do that. You can say, hey, you know what? Your dad wants you to put that basketball away. And you could speak with my authority. Now, the problem is, that only works if you've spoken to me first and discerned my will. Because it's not going to be very effective if I actually just sent them out with the basketball and said, I want you to play with this until I'm ready. Suddenly, you have no authority, even though you're claiming my name. If you want to speak with my authority, you've got to talk to me and discern my will. The same is true here. We must, we must seek Him. We must know Him. We must know His will if we're going to speak with His authority because it's not a magic word. And we see this played out in Acts chapter 19, which is a sad slash comical story. We meet some guys here and they're really excited about the power of the name of Jesus and they want to do some cool stuff. And so they, they see what's happening here and the apostles and disciples and they're like, okay, well then I'm going to try this. And they find a man and he's possessed by a demon and they, they come to the man and they say, in the name of Jesus... Demon, get out of this man. Do you remember how that story ends? The demon-possessed man turns and the demon speaks through the man. And he says, Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now, if you try to speak to my kids in my name and it doesn't go well, that won't be the end result. <laughs> but here we learn, listen, it's not, it's not a magic word. When we speak in the name of Jesus, so maybe just to be practical, when we pray, and I'll pray in Jesus' name, what I'm saying in those three words is like a short-form way of saying this. It would be too long if I said this after each prayer. But here's what I'm saying. I'm saying, God... I am praying this today, believing that you hear, believing that you will answer, but not because of who I am. I know who I am. I don't, I don't deserve to have an audience with God. I know my sin. I know the things that I've done. I know how many times I've fallen short of your glory. I know that you are holy. So I am not praying this in Levi's name. I'm praying this in Jesus' name because he is perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. He paid the price, washed me in his blood. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, mediating on my behalf. And he said that I could come to you in his name. And so I am. In Jesus' name, I'm coming. And I'm, I'm asking for this thing because I believe that this is in alignment with what you want. I believe this is in alignment with his will. And therefore, if I'm right... I can ask for this with, with utmost confidence. So in Jesus' name, let it be so. Amen. That's what, you know, I mean, if we did that every time, there would be a long prayer. But that's what we're saying. Not a magic word. We're aligning ourselves with authority. We're aligning ourselves with the will of the Son of God. And they looked at this man and they said, In Jesus' name, stand up. 
and walk. And he did just that. Now this sign drew a crowd. And as is the case every time in the book of Acts, when these signs happen, they're followed by an explanation, by a sermon. And so with the time we have left, we're going to turn our attention to the sermon. And we find it in verses 11 to 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Pause there. So just imagine the scene as you're reading. Just imagine the scene. Here's this guy, and he's, he's like hugging them. You ever seen somebody who's so excited? Like he's, he's not going to let them go. So he's hugging them. He's praising God. And a crowd's gathering. They're just outside the temple here at Solomon's portico. Verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to Him in whatever He tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, that is an impressive sermon, and he covers a lot of ground. Because we dealt with a very similar sermon two weeks ago in the Sermon for Pentecost, that gives us the freedom right now to move a little bit quicker than we would. And so we're going to do a quick summary. Here's one thing that I want you to see first of all. I want you to see that he is addressing the Jewish people. You know, and, and don't rush by that because it helps us to understand the sermon. In fact, you know, I'll just jump ahead to our first point. The first thing we find, we're going to break the sermon into two parts. Part one is an announcement. He's making an announcement 
to the people of God. He's in stage one of the assignment, which is where? Where's stage one? Jerusalem. So he's here in Jerusalem, and he's speaking to the, the biological descendants of Abraham, the, the children of the promise, the people who are in covenant with God. And what he's doing here is he's opening the Scriptures and he's showing them that Jesus is not just a new footnote. Jesus is not an addition to what we had. Like, look, here are a bunch of great prophets and then here's another prophet, Jesus. We add him to the list. He's saying, it's not that. If you try to do that, it's going to burst the wine. Jesus talked about this. You know, he's, I'm sending new wine. If you try to put the new wine in the old wineskins, it'll just burst. So this isn't just like, you know... A, this isn't just uh, Judaism 2.0. This is the fulfillment. This is every, it's, it's a shift right here. And so he opens the scriptures and he looks out at his people and he, he takes all of these, you imagine these little nails. Uh, he like, wraps a string around the nail of this promise and around the nail of this promise and the nail of this promise. And he shows how all of it connects to this one nail, Jesus. All of it fulfilled right here. And he ascribes titles to Jesus in this sermon that would have absolutely blown their minds it won't have the same effect on many of us here because we're not the people who are immersed in the Old Testament Scriptures. If you're visiting with us for the first time and you're saying, you know, this Peter's sermon here isn't the kind of sermon that would have immediately grabbed my attention. Well, he, was, he wasn't targeting you in this moment. He's speaking to the Jews. And he's showing them that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. Let me just walk through very quickly some of the titles that he ascribes to Jesus. He refers to him as the Christ which is another term for the Messiah, which is a reference to the king in the line of David, David's greater son. This is the one that Israel's been waiting for. I mean, these are, these, now these are religious people, right? We're in the temple. So he's not just out in the streets here. He's in the temple. These are people who are there for the daily prayer. These are people who know their scriptures and they are longing for, pleading for God to send the Messiah. Send us the king who is going to lift the, the foot of Rome from crushing us and is going to put us back in authority and who's going to rule over the nations. We want the Messiah. And he says, he, he's here. Remember, you saw him, Jesus, Pilate tried to release him. And you said, no, 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 keep him, release Barabbas. He's the king we've been waiting for. He refers to him as the, the offspring of Abraham. This is promised in Genesis 22 that God would send a seed through Abraham that would bless the nations. So God's going to bless Abraham and through his family, he's going to bless the nations. And they assumed that, you know, we as Israel are the seeds. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul picks up the language. He says, well, actually, you read it wrong. It's not the seeds, it's the seed. The one descendant through whom blessing would extend to the nations. And that descendant is Jesus. He's the fulfillment of Genesis 22. He's the servant of God. Another title applies to him. This is from Isaiah. The suffering servant of Isaiah. They were waiting for one who would come who would, who would take upon himself the iniquities of the people. Now, most of them reading this assume that this is referring to Israel again. But he says, no, no, no. It wasn't referring to Israel. It was referring to this servant. The perfectly innocent sufferer who through his suffering would set us free, who through his suffering would bring liberty for the people of God, it's Jesus. And it was according to God's will that he suffered on our behalf. He is the author of life. There's a fourth title he ascribes to him. He is the holy and righteous one. That's titles five and six. But he ascribes another title. And 
in this title, I want to zoom in on this one in particular because I want us to understand what he's claiming with this title. In verse 22, he says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. So if you can kind of picture that that board with all the nails. So he's got the nail of the Messiah and and the seed of of Abraham and the suffering servant and the holy righteous one and the author of life and all of these strands he's, he's connecting to Jesus. But now he puts in this one more nail, prophet like Moses. And he quotes it and he says, he is the prophet like Moses that we've been waiting for. We read about this in Deuteronomy 18. Moses said, someone like me is going to come. Remember what Moses said to us? He said, when he comes, listen to him. Having connected all these dots, he's making his concluding argument. He's saying, Jesus is that prophet like Moses. We were called to listen to him. And what he's doing here is he's bringing the people to a point of decision. He's saying, you can't just brush this off. You can't just add Jesus as another footnote in your your list of prophets. No, because you remember what Moses said right after that? He quotes it in the next verse. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So Peter leans in and he says, in the temple, to the people of God, he says, if you would continue to be the people of God, if you would continue to identify as the children of the promise, then you must accept this prophet. You must accept the prophet like Moses, Jesus. He is the new lawgiver. He is everything that I've ascribed him more. He is the one that we must follow. And if we do not follow him, then we are no longer the people of God. By rejecting Jesus, you've rejected God altogether. That's what he's saying in the temple. It's why next week we're going to find out that he gets arrested. You're not supposed to say things like that in the temple. But he looks out. And he loves these people and he says, I need to tell you the truth. I need to tell you the truth about Jesus and I need to tell you the truth about your sin. This is an urgent situation and I'm not going to miss this opportunity. He looks out and he says, you denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. This... They're here because they're, the guy who used to be a beggar is now dancing. They were just having a nice time of prayer, and now they see this guy dancing who used to be lame, and they're just excited. They just want to see what's happening over here. This is what a great day. This is great news. They come over. What happened? And he tells them, he says, listen, you are about to be outside of the covenant people of God unless you respond to what you have seen and heard. In this moment, he is flipping their life upside down. By the way, that's what proclaiming the gospel does. When we confront people with the message of the gospel, they should walk away understanding that their life has just been flipped upside down. He's saying, you cannot pretend that you haven't seen what you've seen now. You can't pretend that you didn't know. Now you know. Now you see. You must respond. You didn't just fail to listen to the prophet like Moses. You murdered him. Now, This sermon was effective, not to give all of next week's sermon away, but if you flip ahead to chapter 4, the church grows to 5,000 people. So they're not dismissing Peter, they're listening. 
And if they're listening to, to what we've just talked about, and these are people who are, are immersed in the Scriptures, some of these people would have heard Jesus preach and teach. Some of these people would have even signed, seen His previous signs and miracles. There are people listening to Peter right now who are absolutely broken. Can't lift their eyes. They, they're feeling the conviction of sin. But I want you to see the second piece of this sermon. Because after making this announcement, this announcement that demands a response, he leans in with an invitation. He says in verse 17, listen to the way he tenderly addresses them. He says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. He says, you didn't know. And in fact, he goes on in verse 18. I don't have this on the screen, but just look in your Bible. So he says, You act in an ignorance, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So he tells them, You didn't know, and God was working his plan. And in this, he's echoing the prayer that Jesus prayed from the cross. Remember what Jesus prayed from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just, so Jesus, he's being, at this time when he's praying this, he's being nailed to the cross. And what we learn there is that there is forgiveness even for the people who nailed Jesus to the cross. Peter's in Jerusalem speaking to the people who asked for a murderer to be released instead of Jesus. And he's saying, you acted in ignorance. There's forgiveness for you. There's forgiveness for the people who rejected their Savior. And there's forgiveness for you. Perhaps just like these people, you were blind to His goodness. You just couldn't see it. I mean, I go back to the way that we were born into powerlessness. All those passages we read from Romans and Ephesians. The Bible describes us apart from Christ, apart from the help of His Spirit, as blind to the Lord, as deaf. We need ears to be dug out to even hear. We can't hear as we should. Dead in our sin. It's not like we need to intellectually make our way to this place. We cannot see apart from His help. But now, perhaps He's opened your eyes to see as He did with these people. These people who were not anticipating this. These people who went to the temple to carry on with their normal life. But now everything has changed. He's opened your eyes to see. And seeing you're broken by your sin. I want to tell you, that's a good place to be. To be broken. These people were broken. But I also want you to hear, they didn't stay in that place. Peter looked out over that crowd of, of broken, grieving people who had rejected their Savior, who had thumbed their nose at their King, and he gave this invitation. He said, you were ignorant in the past. This was, God, God was working out His plan, but now you see, repent, therefore, and turn back. Notice that he says turn back. He's not saying turn forward. He's saying turn back to the promise of your Scriptures Jesus is, is not something new and novel. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of your longings. Repent, therefore. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He says, if you turn, if you confess your sins and, and, and claim allegiance to this one, the Messiah, the Christ, the seed of Abraham, 
the holy and righteous one, the author of life, the suffering servant. If you align yourself with Him, your sins will be blotted out. These are the people who knew Jesus. Not all of them individually, but the people in Jerusalem. The people who knew Jesus. The people who listened to Jesus. The people who rejected Jesus. The people who mocked Jesus, whipped Jesus, spat on Jesus, stripped Him naked, and nailed Him to a tree. That's who these people are. How hard are they going to have to work to try to get out of that debt? Right? How are they going to erase the record of all the things that they have wronged? Well, Peter looks out at them and he says, actually, God is ready to erase it right now. You repent and turn and your sins will be blotted out. Today, immediately, forever, as far as the east is from the west, forgiveness is right here. Blotted, it's like, it's like here's your rap sheet, all the things you've done wrong. It's like, he'll dump the whole pot on it. It's indiscernible. Blotted out forever. I don't know how it is that we wrap our minds around grace. You know, we talk about this week after week, right? Which means that there's always a tendency that it will become dry or cold or lifeless. And maybe, maybe you're here right now and it just feels, you're thinking about grace, you're thinking about forgiveness, but your heart just feels pretty cold. I just encourage you to invite the Spirit to, to warm your heart again to this glorious truth that people, people who can never, ever, ever earn grace, people like you, people like me, have received it. People who've done some horrible things. And maybe, maybe as I look out at this room, you've got some skeletons in your closet. There are some things that you've done that when you think about, you feel sick to your stomach. The kind of stuff that you're just hoping that nobody ever finds. And, or maybe you've just got these repeated patterns of sin and you feel so unlovable. The people in your life find you unlovable. You find yourself unlovable. And you wonder, how could there possibly be a God who has grace for me? You feel so far from His reach. Can I tell you this morning? Jesus prayed for the men who swung the hammer. Then He commanded His church to go back into Jerusalem where he was rejected and crucified, and he commanded his church to offer them the gospel first. That's what we see in verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first. Start right here, God says. Extend my offer of mercy and forgiveness to the whole world, but I want you to start here. Part one of your assignment is to extend grace and mercy in this place where the rebellion and the mutiny and the rejection reached its climax. Where my son hung naked on a tree. Start here and tell them that there's forgiveness for them in Christ. God doesn't write people off the way that we do. His commitment to grace is stronger than our commitment to sin. His love is stronger than our rebellion. The Puritan Richard Sibbs once said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Therefore, for as long as you have breath, and maybe you're here right now and your heart is still hard, not interested, thank you very much, God, keep your Savior Jesus, I'm not interested, even still, as the seed's being planted in your heart, after a lifetime of rebellion, there is still grace and mercy for you if you will repent and turn. And when we turn, God gives us more than a clean slate. He gives us life. This is where we close. Look again at this invitation. 
He says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Peter is surely alluding here to the promise in Isaiah 35 verse 6. Isaiah caught a glimpse of this coming day of refreshment and he described it this way. Then, in that coming day of refreshment, then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Does that sound familiar? And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So Peter's declaring here that the times of refreshment that we need, that we've been waiting for, those times are right here. And again, God sets off fireworks as his kingdom advances in the world. And here he's setting off this firework as the lame leaps into the temple like a deer. And it's a neon sign for the people who are there, the people who are parched and weary and looking for something. And God says, look right here. Refreshment is right here. Where the water is going to burst into the dry and weary lands. Where there's going to be life where there was once death. It's right here. And I don't know if we're ever going to witness a lame man leaping into this room. I hope we do. That would be really exciting. But I'll tell you what. There are a thousand miracles all around us in this place. Week after week after week. Spiritually dead people are coming to life all around us. It's happening. Two weeks ago I had the privilege of talking to two people who were spiritually dead who are now spiritually alive. That's a miracle. Two miracles. And it happened right here. And it's happening all the time. Marriages that were lame right from the beginning, like this man laid at the gate, are beginning to stand. Some of them are even leaping. And I have faith for all of them that they will stand and that they will leap. Hearts that were consumed with affection for sin have become hearts that long for the things of God. Addictions are losing their power. People that used to love and think about how they could immerse themselves in in filth are now loving and looking forward to times when they can immerse themselves in the Word of God. That's a miracle. Idols are falling to the floor. That's a miracle. Christ is being exalted. There is power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. And if you do not know that power, if you haven't seen Him, if your eyes have been closed all this time, if in ignorance... You have rejected the Messiah. But if for the first time God has opened your eyes to see the truth, then I just want to close with this invitation. Repent therefore and turn back. Come home that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The times of refreshing are here. So we're going to pray together. I'm going to bow your heads with me now. Heavenly Father, we love You. And we thank You for Your kindness to us. Thank You that, Lord, as I think about this room, it's filled with men and women who have sinned, who have fallen short in a variety of ways, Lord. We have, each of us have stories from our past. Things that we've done, things that we've said, things that we've thought, people that we've hurt. We have stories from our past that if we were to share them with everyone in this room, would change the way that everyone in this room sees us. And yet, God, You see every last detail of every last story. You see the worst of the worst of the worst in us. And yet, You have this overwhelming love for us that led You to send Your Son 
to cleanse us from our sin, to blot out the record of our wrongs. God, let that be more than a theological truth that we check off in our minds. Let that be the reality that changes us, God. The the reality that changes our parenting, that changes the way that we relate with our coworkers, the way that we think about the world, the way that we relate with our spouses, that we would recognize the amazing grace of God. God, I... We can't just muster up hearts and minds that are awake to the beauty of this. We just can't do it. So I ask that as we reflect on your word, Lord, as your truth permeates and saturates in our hearts and in our lives, that by the power of your spirit, you would bring this truth to life. The announcement that Christ is everything that we need everything that the world has been longing for, the longing of the Jewish people, the longing of the Gentiles, all of us, the, all, all the areas of our lives that feel so unsatisfying and so unfulfilled, all the things that leave us longing for more, Christ is the fulfillment. He has come and He's invited us into relationship. God, I pray that that would just so overwhelm us and so transform us. God, I I pray a blessing on the people here in this room. Lord, and I don't know, perhaps there are people who they're not in relationship with you. They've rejected you. God, they've they've got hearts that are stone and cold and, and, and just don't want anything to do with you. God, I'm just pleading in Jesus' name that today would be a day of refreshment for them. That you would you would cause the lame to leap like a deer, cause the deaf to hear the blind to see, I would add. And Lord, that you would bring living water in places where it's been cold and dead for a very, very long time. So God, I ask for that in Jesus' name. And I thank you that as I ask in Jesus' name, that there is power in the name of Jesus. So God, we pray all of this in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?